Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Zainab Sadira's 2002 work, Mother Tongue, explores the idea of transmission, um, that is how culture, histories, and traditions are passed along and between generations. Born in Paris to Algerian immigrant parents, Sadira moved to London where her own daughter was born. The work involves three generations of women, herself, her mother, and her daughter, and each narrates their life stories in each of their own languages to the other. Sadira's mother speaks in Arabic, to which Sadira responds in French. And Sadira then tells her own story to her daughter in French, with her daughter responding in English. When Sadira's mother and daughter are in, are in conversation together, one in Arabic, the grandmother, and one in English, the daughter, there is no longer any understanding between them. Sadira is looking at the phenomenon of non-communication. Um, where there is no longer any means to understand each other and no, longer, and, and no longer a route for transmission. And therefore, she's looking at her own role and how that has become the role of the mediator or the transmitter, the vehicle through which the narrative of one generation is passed between grandmother and granddaughter. I start with this example because I'm deeply interested in this question. How do cultures, traditions and histories travel and translate across the boundaries of time and geography. My own work has centered on the mosque in Britain, and I've approached this subject both as a researcher and as a designer. In terms of my design work, I've been, I've been working with Muslim communities since the early 2000s, designing their mosque projects. These have involved a range of building types from adaptations, extensions, and new builds, as well as conceptual ideas. This work on the ground, in a way on the coalface of mosque architecture in Britain, has led me to studying mosque form and history a little further, and eventually to my research and publication of my book on the history of the British mosque, published in 2018 uh, by Historic England. Through this book, I told the architectural and social story of the mosque in Britain. This was a story that to this point had not been told. One of the questions that compelled me on this journey was what happens to the history of Islamic architecture once it hits the diaspora, we're quite familiar with the story of Islamic architecture and culture now told in many monographs, which generally tell a story that starts with the Umayyad Empire and the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem of 691 and ends with the Ottomans in Istanbul in the 19th century. This was and is the story of Islamic architecture as told through the modern European gaze, and, it, and it's a history constructed largely through an engagement and interpretation of historic monuments. But what happens after this? After the Ottomans, after decolonization, and the migration of Muslims into Western nations? And what about the cultural histories of these diasporas? What about us? Let me give you a short overview of the architectural story of this diaspora in Britain. The first mosque in Britain appeared as a folly in Kew Gardens in 1763, alongside a Chinese pagoda and other manifestations of non-European cultures. 
It served as a representation of Islam and Muslim architecture to a Western audience. The symbol of a distant other, complete with a central dome and two flanking minarets in a broadly Ottoman style. The first functioning purpose-built mosque in Britain was built in Woking, commissioned by a Hungarian Jewish scholar, Gottlieb Leitner, and designed by local architect William Chambers. It encapsulated a late Victorian fashion for the Oriental with flamboyant arches, crenellations, cupolas, and domes. After World War II, with the advent of decolonization, large numbers of Muslims settled in Britain from certain parts of South Asia, and the Muslim population increased rapidly. A handful of mosques in port cities followed. A handful of mosques in port cities followed Woking until the end of the Second World War and the partition of India. Mosques of the early post-war years were rudimentary operations, formed mostly from converted houses or other buildings which were adapted to serve a new religious function. The portability of Islamic rituals meant that a mosque could be created with the most elemental of alterations, such as the opening up of domestic rooms to form prayer halls, adapting bathrooms to create ablution uh, facilities and extending into gardens. These mosques of the diaspora differed from the Orientalist visions of the mosque at Woking or Kew, but only perhaps because they lacked the resources. The post-war mosques were being self-made in an iterative and ad hoc fashion by migrant communities who were using them. When these communities were able to introduce architectural expression, they often turned to architectural references from historic Islamic sources, often adapted to fit their contexts. I mean, these three, three uh, photographs here show uh, the typologies of mosques that I identified through the research that I was doing, so the different types of mosques that were being formed by diasporic Muslim communities across the country. And I, I identified uh, one type, which was the kind of converted house, or the house mosque, uh, which is the most rudimentary form of conversion. The earlier, earlier kind of post-war mosques from the 50s onwards were often houses which were simply um, re being reused as, as being used as mosques. So uh, prayer halls were being formed out of you know uh, living rooms and so on. Um, and as you can see on this example, there's a there's an extension built on the back of this house with a couple of minarets and the dome placed on it. So this idea to this kind of like urge to symbolise uh, is always there within the within the congregations that are adapting these buildings and then uh, this kind of symbolization they try to sort of re-signify the building in what, whichever way is possible uh, across a period of time and then there's other types of conversion so this photograph shows uh, in Manchester it's a, um, a warehouse which has been converted into a mosque and here you see that they've built this completely new sort of facade on the front of it onto which are then applied uh, symbols of uh, kind of Islamic historical uh, um, objects uh, and then the purpose built so um, later on uh, communities would often redevelop the existing sites to create purpose-built buildings. And that came uh, later on uh, in that kind of post-war period. Um, and overall, the majority of buildings were our, majority of mosque buildings are adaptations rather than purpose-built. So I sort of, you know, quite fairly quickly concluded that actually if we're talking about a type, if we're talking about an indigenous British Islamic architecture, uh, then we're talking about an architecture which is about adaptation um, with, the, with the sort of growing number, but minority being, being built buildings. Um, and this example, the Islamic, Islamic Center of Brent, uh, this was founded in a former congregational church dating from 1908 and it's built in what's called a free Gothic style. This mosque was founded by Pakistani migrants. Um, they made limited alterations to the exterior. However, most dramatically, they added um, 
domes to the tower and to the small front extension which served as the mihrab. These domes are replicas of those found on the 17th century mosque in Delhi, which you can see the photograph of here. Whilst these examples, whilst these examples, well, this example in particular, and some other examples can be traced back to a historical origin, um, for example, this dome can be traced to the, to the uh, uh, Jamia Mosque in Delhi. Um, such a lineage is not always clear. In many, if not most cases, the Islamic architectural references replicated on post-war mosques are more generic or approximations of historic Islamic architecture from places where Muslim empires once ruled. Uh, as Muslim communities became more established, they started building new mosques usually to replace their existing adapted buildings, uh, which were emerging from the sort of 1970s onwards. The uh, Nur al-Islam Mosque in Bolton is a good example of how post-war purpose-built mosques took Islamic historical references and combined them with, a vernacular English, uh, with vernacular English architectural idioms, resulting in a new hybrid language, which we could describe as an architectural bricolage or perhaps an Islamic creole. Let me go into a little bit of detail about this building um, because it's instructive as to how the, this language of British Islamic architecture has been produced. It was established and built by migrants from Gujarat who started settling in this part of Bolton from the 1950s. This mosque tells a story of how a place of worship has been created through an incremental community-led process. From the 1960s, the community had adapted a nearby house for use as their mosque, um, and it was in the late 70s that this site here on Prospect Street in Bolton was purchased and planning approval for a new mosque obtained in 1977. That, the building was funded by the congregation and so it was built slowly, opening in 1983. Uh, it was a low-cost endeavor and it was, as a low-cost endeavor, it was unadorned and plain. It was essentially, essentially it was, uh, the building that they built was part one, perhaps part two story, I'm not completely sure, uh, just a brick enclosure with a flat roof uh, on the top of it. Um, it took, uh, so fundraising took time, so they continued to fundraise, and it was another 10 years before the mosque could think about further works. In 1993, planning commission was approved for a first floor extension, and in 1994, approval for a new roof with the dome and minarets, um, all of which were built afterwards. So, this, so what you see now was, was the post-94 uh, adaptation to the first uh, stage of the building. The planning drawings are rudimentary, showing a dome profile perched on the end of a timber-pitched roof with a simple minaret erected along the front facade and shorter flanking minarets on the side of the building, which, which were not built. Um, so, but the single minaret and dome were built, as you can see. Um, and it uses the same yellow brick as the rest of the building with the main dome uh, and smaller dome topping the minaret molded in glass reinforced plastic. And this is a material that was becoming and was by now ubiquitous uh, in the fabrication of such Islamic motifs in mosques around the country. Um, another quite striking and inventive feature, I think, added to the building uh, with this roof construction are a pair of gable ends on the front elevation. Um, these have the profile of a bulbous dome, perhaps Mughal style, cut into the face of the gable, so creating a curious amalgamation of a very vernacular roof element, the gable end, which you see here, um, and a somewhat exoticized dome profile. Um, and so, so this building kind of represents this emergence of this hybridized uh, and creolized uh, architectural language taking place, uh, which carried on probably from the sort of, you know, early... <coughs> 
from the 70s through to the kind of 90s, mid 90s, there was this, there was this um, hybridization of architectural language. And I think, in a way, a kind of, um, uh, in, one could say, a sort of indigenous architecture emerging out of that, out of that, out of that combination, out of that meeting of, of cultural, uh, uh, historic, and architectural references. Um, but from the mid-90s, there was a shift uh, in this approach. A new wave of purpose-built mosques started to emerge, which were more formally designed and produced. The resulting buildings were no longer ad hoc or freestyle combinations of disparate architectural elements, which had characterized the self-built, largely adapted mosques of the previous decades, but were now aspiring to be a more complete and coherent Islamic architecture rooted in the past. The 1996 Bilal Mosque in Leeds, there's a drawing of it here, and this is the building, uh, is perhaps one of the initiators, I think, of this trend, designed by a Bradford-based Iraqi-born structural engineer, Atba al-Samurai. It presents an architectural language that is fully rooted in Islamic sources, adapted though they may be for this context. Indeed, there's not necessarily any accuracy in the way in which diaspora source their historical Islamic references both for the self-built and ad hoc mosques, nor for the intentionally designed ones. So, so, so references can be pulled from a range of different sources and brought together uh, in these, uh, these purpose-built buildings. For example, the Jamia Mosque in Leicester, completed in 2010, draws its Islamic references more recognizably from 12th century Fatimid mosques of Cairo. The mosque has been formed through the extension and recladding of a former industrial premises with decorated paneling, decorative elements, Minarets and dome being formed from glass-reinforced plastic. Uh, the architects for this building were sourced from the United Arab Emirates, as the mosque committee did not feel any UK architects were sufficiently experienced in Muslim architecture to deliver uh, an adequate design. The, the, there's a historical disjuncture that does occur in the fact that the mosque was founded by and mostly serves a Gujarati Indian community with no ties to the uh, 12th or 13th century Fatimid dynasty. This suggests that diasporic Muslim communities are satisfied with more of a pan-Islamic identity, which can range tempor temporally uh, and geographically across the Muslim world and history, rather than needing to adhere to an ethno-centered uh, route. This delinking of diaspora communities from their specific historical trajectories and their absorption into a broader global community is another consequence and condition of migration. So how do we understand and make sense of this architectural history, of how Muslim diasporas have established their presence and cultural practices, and how they relate to their own pasts and histories? The Victorian Albert Museum's pavilion at the Venice Biennale 2021 took this period of mosque making as its subject. The exhibition, curated by myself, Christopher Turner, and Ella Kilgallen, reproduced architectural fragments of three London mosques, which can be all the identified as self-designed from the 1970s to the 1990s. Uh, each mosque represented a certain type of adaptation. Brick Lane Mosque, which is a photograph of it here, established in 1976, uh, it became a mosque. Uh, it was formally, uh, it was built initially in 1743 as a Huguenot uh, chapel, church. And then it was, it did then become a Methodist chapel and then it became a synagogue. Uh, and then in 1976, it became a mosque. Um, Harrow Mosque was fashioned from a pair of semi-detached houses in the early 1980s. And Old Kent Road Mosque was adapted from a, a public house in the 1990s. 
The exhibition, this is Old Kent Road Mosque here, which you see on this side. So this was a, a former pub which had become the mosque. Um, and you see an interior of, the, of the, uh, the pub here. So this was the dining hall, first floor dining hall of the pub, which had become the, the, the main male prayer hall of the mosque. And you can see the way in which that existing space has been uh, adapted and uh, painted and redecorated and a new set of a new set of kind of signs and symbols have been applied to that to, to reorientate its, its, its meaning. Um, the exhibition focused on this period of mosque architecture um, as it encapsulates uh, mosque making by migrants from former British colonies, um, which helped to transform uh, British society in the post-war period. The exhibition, therefore, and what we did in the exhibition, you can see some photographs of it here, was, was to recreate uh, fragments of those buildings that we were looking at uh, as one-to-one -one replicas uh, and display them in the exhibition space. So here you can see the, uh, the, um, the wall part of the Old Kent Road Mosque. Uh, in the, in, on the left of that is one of the dormer windows from the Brick Lane Mosque and, and so on. So we kind of worked through uh, the buildings. This is the Mihrab in the Harrow Mosque. So this was in a, in a, in a living room of the Harrow Mosque. Uh, it was built by um, a carpenter in Kashmir, so the people who were setting up the mosque had gone to Kashmir, was where they were from, uh, found a local carpenter, given them a design, had been built, they brought it back and they installed it. So there's this kind of very uh, sort of intimate history to the objects that have been, that have been um, built and the way in which the mosques have been uh, adapted. Uh, this is a, the, the doors of the Harrow Mosque, domestic, and then the sundial at the top of the Brick Lane Mosque that you can see there, which was built when the Protestants, when the Huguenots built the church, and then the female prayer space of the Brick Lane Mosque was here. And um, the Old Kent Road Mosque was actually, quite soon after our exhibition, the Old Kent Road Mosque was uh, demolished to be rebuilt. And that's the drawing, that, that illustration there is the building that is now underway. So this idea of these adaptations being replaced by new builds uh, is something that we wanted to, uh, to sort of highlight. So. Um, so as well as celebrating the mosque in its self-built phase, our, our, uh, the exhibition frames the architecture as a new type of Islamic vernacular, uh, and we recognize uh, it as a significant phase of Muslim architectural and cultural history. Um, indeed, the samples of the Brick Lane Mosque minarets, which, which we had displayed, um, so in the exhibition we had samples of the minaret that has been built at the front of the Brick Lane Mosque. They have, become, they have come back to the V&A galleries as part of their... Uh, permanent um, exhibition. So the mosque for the diaspora fulfills a series of functions. And I've become interested in how the psychological condition of the migrant uh, and the pain of dislocation is present in the making of diasporic life worlds, of which I argue the mosque is a constituent part. The Indian-American psychoanalyst Salma Akhtar talks about what he calls the pain of migration <clears throat> and its cumulative trauma on the migrant ego. He describes how, according to human developmental terms, um, in early infancy, um, there is what he calls synesthesia, where one sensation can be replaced by another, colors become sounds, sound replaces touch, and so on. And it's something that we can experience in dreams, he says. Uh, and he describes how, in normal ego growth, synesthesia develops into sensory compartmentalization. So a person living in their normal, familiar environment can cross and recross this ambiguous terrain between synesthesia and sensory compartmentalization many times. So being able to move between um, 
between uh, a sort of conceptualizing the blurring of boundaries uh, and being able to move between or existing within a space where boundaries are blurred and a space where uh, categories are much more kind of compartmentalized. So, so what Akhtar argues is that, that, that a person can move between these many times. He says you can cross and recross this boundary. Uh, and this is the foundation of metaphor. And he says that one of the major problems with early immigration is the loss of metaphor and its replacement with literalness. So this ability to cross between a blurred, a situation of being, of being in a space where boundaries are blurred and a space where, where uh, uh, categories are much more distinct uh, is lost in that process of migration, early, mig early immigration, he says. Um, and it's what he calls uh, a linguistic regression in the mind leading to um, lit literalness. Um, Akhtar offers further analysis of the diasporic psychic condition that results from the rupture of migration. He lists a number of attitudes and fantasies that the migrant adopts. Firstly, there is the attitude of repudiation, a sensory denial of being in a new place. Then the fantasy of return, which is continuously delayed until in most cases it is abandoned. After this comes the fantasy of replication, that if return is not possible, then the migrant will remake their lost homeland in the new place. And it's this replication uh, as a way for the migrant to... Well, it's this replication that I'm particularly interested when looking at the architecture of the mosque and the, the, the signs and symbols and the references that have been produced, that are used in the production of the mosque in Britain. Um, and the idea of this replication potentially being a way in, in which the migrant can deny loss and minimize what after what calls the, the laceration of the self that they have suffered. Uh, objects, then, that are used in this process of replication take on a shamanic and totemic significance, onto which are transferred the traumas of dislocation and the loss of that environment that emplaced the person in the world. My, next my argument is that the architecture of the diaspora mosque becomes an instrument through which to reimagine and reconstruct the historical and cultural trajectories of migrants that have been interrupted by colonization and migration. So this brings us back to the idea of transmission that I started the lecture with and to the question of how is culture, history, and tradition transmitted across generations when communities have suffered such violence and dislocation and when their trajectories now exist on either side of a historical, geographic, and epistemological divide. The architecture of the Diaspora Mosque, according to my reading here, is an attempt to transmit across this gap and to ground dislocated Muslim communities to an imagined, coherent, and continuous Islamic culture and history. As a designer of mosques, I too must take up a position in this process of cultural transmission. So one of the earliest of my built projects was the Chaparran Mosque on Hackney Road in East London. Um, and this is a photograph of the project uh, when I started it, which was based, it was a house at the end of a terrace, um, and the house had been adapted to form the mosque. It was a, lo a local Bangladeshi community that was running the, the building. Uh, and at the back of it, they had a single-story workshop, and that space had been adapted to form the prayer hall. And the project was to refurbish the house, to re redevelop the house, uh, to retain it as the mosque, and also to build a new building at the back, um, which, would, which would sort of tie together with the existing front building, so kind of extending the, 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 um, the facility. And um, for this project, I took a, um, 
I took a pattern that is found uh, in Islamic cultures of Central Asia and rescaled it to use it as the basis for a design of a facade for the building. Uh, rather than a literal replication, I was interested in an abstracted and fragmented replication. The geometric pattern of the 13th century Anatolian tile is scaled up to become the facade. And it is decentered so that part of it is lost outside of the frame of the building, which you can see uh, in that image there, uh, that the pattern itself continues outside the, 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 the scope of the, of the facade of the building. And here you see the, the new building and then the existing building uh, alongside it. Uh, and the steel lattice infill is a replication of the window tracery of the 1889 Woking Mosque. Um, so I was trying to touch on all of the cultural entanglements that that building uh, entailed. This is another photograph looking, you can see that front building and uh, how that was restored. And this is the lattice on the left uh, on the building. And then on the right-hand side is a photograph of the Woking Mosque window. Um, I, deployed, I deployed a similar approach to Islamic pattern and contemporary abstraction in the mosque I designed in Aberdeen. And this is the site for the Aberdeen Mosque. It was a, um, it's kind of at the end of this uh, row of houses here, that single-story um, works building. Um, and it was a redevelopment of that site to, to, to create the mosque building there. Um, so here I looked at, an, a, a, again, a traditional Islamic pattern, uh, which was casting concrete panels and forms the dominant part of the front facade. Ceramic tiles, which are individually designed and made by the artist Lubna Chowdhury, are placed in the center of each panel, thereby interconnecting the historic symbol uh, of the pattern with the contemporary crafted object. The other parts of the facade are made with a contemporary concrete cast pattern and granite blockwork to reference the materiality of the street, so the granite blockwork is on the ground floor level. In, um, in this way, the architecture of the mosque is a frame on which a composition of visual and historic references are assembled. In the design process for Aberdeen, uh, I explored the different ways in which Islamic geometric patterns, which have come to serve as a quintessential sign of Islamic art and culture, could be altered and shifted, disrupted slightly to symbolize the disjointed process of transmission. One of the exercises uh, was to work with uh, artist Adam Williamson to explore geometric patterns that, trans that transition between traditional Celtic and Islamic. Eventually, the relationship between uh, an imagined past uh, and diasporic present was represented through, this, through the placing of these contemporary individual stars into the um, traditional uh, cast pattern work. So in each of these projects, I use architecture as a metaphor to represent the condition of the Muslim diaspora in Britain as I understand and have experienced it. This understanding is based on how I have processed my own lived experience as a second-generation migrant, as well as how I have researched British Muslim history. In my projects, the historical references are slightly contorted uh, as they are transmitted across the rupture of migration and dislocation. I'm saying that in this process of attempting to restore a historical continuity through architecture that the mosque in Britain represents or attempts, something is fundamentally being lost. Just as there is silence between Sadira's mother and daughter, so there is a gap between the pre-colonial past and the diasporic present. In that gap, you have lost context, metaphor, nuance, complexity, 
Um, and what you're left with is an incomplete series of fragments from, from which you must reconstruct a new world. This continuous reconstruction that must navigate, well, that, that diasporas are engaged in, must navigate a real and imagined past and a new and often traumatic present. And this negotiation changes both the diaspora and the host. However, reconstruction is not a straightforward remaking of that which has been lost. I contend that diasporic reconstruction is as much, if not more, an act of reinvention. To me, it is less that a past world is being restored, but more that a new world is being made. In my project for, re for the redevelopment of Folkestone Mosque, I wanted to explore further and find a language for this process of reinvention. We carried out workshops with local children uh, who attended the mosque, and we took walks along the seafront and collected objects. From these, the children made drawings and prints, uh, and from these, I developed new types of pattern. So these are drawings and prints that the, the kids made, um, and then I developed a new type of pattern based on the, based on the drawings. Uh, and this pattern was placed within a six-sided hexagon, which is a familiar geometric device in Islamic art, but the internal pattern was completely new, and it had been derived from the drawings of the children. This new hexagonal pattern was then repeated to form a lattice facade of the new mosque. And this was my attempt... Uh, which you can see here, and this was my attempt to, um, to try and emplace a new type of Islamic pattern which follows the structure of traditional geometries but is derived from the real lives of the mosque communities. Um, and this is a sort of, this is a plan showing where the a building is being extended towards the front, that kind of green part, and this is a, a visualization of the new, uh, the new sort of mosque with that new pattern work and the new, the, the, the new um, uh, trellis on the front. Um, and it's this space between reconstruction and reinvention that is for me the architecture of the that is where the architecture of the mosque and, and of migrancy exists so one of the ways in which I've tried to explore these qualities, these kind of existing qualities of the adapted and self-built mosque in Britain which is this amalgamation of signs and references um, to create this kind of new Islamic cre creole has been through drawings made on visits and research trips these drawings are part remembered and part invented assemblages of mosques encountered in British townscapes. They serve as my own visual processing and documentation for possible future use. As you can see here, some of them. Um, and another, another example of my ongoing exploration into this experience of the mosque in Britain is the uh, installation model made for an exhibition uh, in the v &A in 2019. This was made in response to a, a model of an Indian mosque in the gallery, and this model is made entirely of paper. I, I replicated architectural elements from different models in the gallery and arranged these across a structural grid, the blue sort of grid that you can see there. The grid represents a new narrative structure across which the fragments of other buildings from the gallery are arranged, uh, appropriating them to create a series of new uh, architectural meanings. So the kind of, what the model kind of represents is the idea of bringing different fragments into a new structural frame to create new sets of relationships and meanings. And this is a kind of reflection or a, a representation of how the mosque in Britain functions, as it were, is, is produced. So I've explored uh, the role that the mosque in Britain plays in the transmission of culture, 
and tradition across a divide of time and geography. Uh, it's an instrument through which the migrant processes their experience of dislocation, projecting onto the mosque uh, totemic objects, signs and symbols which represent lost worlds and arrested futures. And I've described my own endeavor to develop a design language for the mosque which responds to the rea reality and complexity of Islam in the diaspora. This work is ongoing uh, and as yet unconcluded and really represents a series of observations uh, and a series of explorations that find um, sort of manifestation uh, in some building, some built projects, uh, some exhibition work uh, and some installations um, and sort of ongoing bits of writing and research and the opportunity to be able to present the work in lectures like this. So I'll, I'll finish there and I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.